Uh, we do have a Matthew exam. Let me give you guys the questions here. It says, let me just, as I always do, run you through the questions so that you know what we're looking for. The purpose of our exams is to make sure you understand the material that we've covered. It's not, I'm not trying to trick you with any of these questions, so I just want to clear that up by going through these quickly. All right, here we go. Question one. Explain why Herod had John the Baptist executed. This will be in Matthew chapter 14. There are like four different answers that you could give to that, three or four different right answers. I'll take any one of them. Number two, for what was Peter rebuked when he began to sink in the sea? It's actually in the text, so I'll let you find that. Number three, what were the Pharisees and scribes following in place of the word of God? So uh, that's in chapter 15 at the beginning of it. Number four, uh, where does humanity's moral, from where does humanity's moral evil proceed? I don't need a long dissertation about Genesis 3 and so forth. This is in Matthew 15. Jesus gives an answer there. Number five, why did Jesus not answer immediately the woman of Canaan's plea for help? Matthew 15, 24. Find the answer there. Number six, what did Jesus mean when he mentioned the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What was that leaven? Number seven, offer one reason that Peter is not the rock on which the church is built. There again, there are about two or three uh, correct answers you can give there. I'll accept any of them. Number eight, what does Satan want us to savor? So what is he trying to get mankind to do? Um, now, please, I need an answer that comes from Matthew 16. Look down there. I believe it's verse 23-ish. Pretty sure it's verse 23. You'll find the answer there. Number nine, according to chapter 16, verses 24 to 25, what is required in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to quote both verses there, although that would, you get the answer right if you did, but you can just take one of those clear thoughts from those two verses and, and that'll be your right answer. Number 10, how did some who were present with Jesus see the Son of Man coming, forgive me, that's a typo, in his kingdom, let's see if I can change that just now, in his kingdom before their death. Uh, I explained this to you. It's at the end of chapter 16, and I gave you a cross-reference in 2 Peter 1, so please see your notes for that. Number 11, what did Moses and Elijah speak about with Jesus? Uh, you actually won't see that in Matthew 17, but in one of the synoptics, uh, one of the other gospels, I think it's in Luke, you'll see what they talked about. Number 12, why were the disciples not able to cast the devil out of the lunatic boy? There, Jesus directly tells them what the problem was. Number 13, what childlike quality must one possess to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's in chapter 18. Number 14, give the proper order for handling a brother who has, catching all my typos now, I'm so sorry, who has wronged you, assuming he never repents. Now, this is worst case scenario, right? Once you go to him in step one, if he repents, then there's only one step. But I'm, we're taking this as far as Jesus took it, that this brother never gets right. So what, I, I need the four steps there. Number 15, why does God allow for divorce? Jesus mentioned this in chapter 19. Of course, it wasn't the original plan, but because of this, therefore God made some stipulations. Number 16, what did Christ require of the rich young ruler in order for him to have eternal life? Now, I'm not trying to be tricky about this question, but there, there are actually three things that he asked of this young man that you could mention. Uh, I, now, I would like a full answer for this. Right, number 17, what is the meaning of the last shall be first as it pertains to the parable in chapter 20? Be careful with that because that phrase, right, it appears other places. I want it from the parable in chapter 20. Uh, number 18, what is required of Christian leadership to achieve greatness? Right, this is God's version of greatness. You'll find that towards the end of chapter 20. Number 19, what does the cursed fig tree represent allegorically? Uh, see your notes for this. We talked about why it has leaves and no fruit and so forth. Number 20, explain both halves of chapter 21, verse 44. This has to do with the stone at which people stumble and then the stone falling on them. You need to explain what both parts mean. And then only one memory verse for you, chapter 20 and verse 28. All right, if you guys have any questions, 
please, about that, please feel free to slip it into the comments and I'll try to address it before we're done. All right, Matthew 24 and verse number 42. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into this chapter. Lord, thank you this evening that we're able to open up our Bibles and learn more from you, please. Lord Jesus, guide us into all truth. Let the Spirit guide us verse by verse, line by line. Add to us, God. Increase our faith. Help me to teach. Lord, give us all ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 24, verse 42. This is the third section now um, in this chapter, and it all stems down, it all comes down to one thing, stems from one thought. Be ready. In the days of Noah, the problem was the main problem that Jesus addressed. There was abundance of iniquity. They despised preaching, but they were just going about their life as if nothing was ever going to change. Even though Noah said, destruction from heaven, God's going to overthrow everything. They just blew it off. They went about life as, as normal. And that's, people get stuck in that rut and they don't see that God's about to do something. So he's saying, be ready. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now he just mentioned this back in verse 36. We don't know the day or the hour. Verse 43, but know this, he's going to give a practical illustration that if the goodman of the house, that's the owner of it, had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Now, South Africa, we're sort of experts when it comes to crime and, uh, and houses being broken into. So we have some experience as a society when it comes to this. If we would know, right, if the thief would only knock on the door and say, listen, I'm coming tomorrow at 2.30 in the morning, you know, that would be, still wouldn't be nice, but at least we'd be ready and... <laughs> It would stop a lot of problems. Notice Jesus says, if you would know at what time, at what watch he would come. Now remember, the watch in the night, they would break it into four sections. You might remember I showed you a verse in Mark about that. Actually, it's in Mark 13, this same Olivet Discourse. But there's it's from nine p, um, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. There are four, four watches in the night. If you knew what watch he'd come, you'd be ready, right? So what's he getting at? We don't know the watch. We don't know what time the, the, the thief in the night, right? Jesus is coming. So what does that mean for us? That we don't need to be ready since we don't know the hour? No, the lesson he's getting across is the exact opposite. If we knew the time, we'd be ready. Since we don't know the time, we have to be ready all the time. We have to be extra vigilant. We have to be watching more than this goodman of the house. If, if, if this goodman of the house knows the thief is coming at three in the morning, then he's not going to be so worried at 12 midnight, right? He'll be making some plans maybe, but all the action's at three, so wait till then. But if you don't know what time he's coming, you have to be vigilant all the time. Now, in our case, right, the thief... Forgive me, I'm using that term loosely, but Jesus applied it to himself. That thief in the night, he has promised that he's coming. So just think of this practically. If, if, if you started to find little, and oh man, forgive me, I got to be sensitive about this, but I want to drive home the point. If a thief started to threaten, right, and issue threats and say, I'm coming, whew, that would put you on it. You would be ready. You would start taking all these measures. Well, Jesus has told us, I am coming. Surely, the last thing we read in the Bible from the lips of Jesus, surely I come quickly. So we have to be extra vigilant since we don't know the day or the hour. Verse 44, therefore, this is the conclusion that Jesus brings us to. Forgive me here. Need to make a little switch. All right. Um, the point he's getting across, therefore, be ye also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So since you don't have a clue when he's coming, be, be ready. Be even more ready. Years ago, there was a, a young man. At this time, he was a young man. Bob Jones Sr. is how we eventually came to know him. But Bob Jones Sr. got called to preach when he was about uh, 10, I think it was, something like that. He got saved very young at the age of five. He was born in the late 1800s. And then he was an old-time Methodist preacher back when the Methodist church was really strong and thriving and evangelistic and, and everything. 
And uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., he was actually the one that taught Dr. Ruckman in Bible school. And then, of course, I went to Dr. Ruckman school. But So that's why I heard all the time Dr. Ruckman would quote from Dr. Bob Jones Sr. But he told us a story about Bob Jones Sr. when he was about I don't, 10, 11, 12, something like that, very young. He was given the opportunity to preach in church. He got up in church, and, and where he went to church, the pastor, the assistant pastor, and the deacons, they would all sit on the platform behind the man preaching. So l- little Bob Jones gets up to preach, and he, he sits his Bible down, and he turns around, and he says, before I start, I got a question for the pastor. The pastor said, yes. And he said, do you think Jesus is coming right now today? And the pastor said, well, I, I mean, it's always possible, but I don't think he's coming today. And then he asked the assistant pastor, do you think he's coming today, right now, during this church service? I don't think he's coming during the service. And he went through the line and all of them, same answer, he's coming, but we don't think he's coming today. And then that young man opened his Bible. He said, Matthew 24, verse 44 says, in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And then he starts preaching on be be ready. I said, that's very clever for... Uh, 11, 12-year-old boy, whatever his age was, to, to introduce a sermon like that. Really got the point across. Verse 45, Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Now, something I want to point out about this, the, we, we understand in this illustration, the servant, that's one of us, right? One of Christ's disciples. And the Lord, that's Jesus, he's made him ruler over his household, the family, right? Everything that belongs to the master, to, to the Lord. So, especially if he calls you to preach, I think there's some unique instruction in this. Give them meat in due season. Feed the people. Tell them what they need to hear when they need to hear it. In due season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort in season, out of season. You stay instant and ready to feed the people. Feed the people. Now, obviously, Jesus is trying to get a much broader point across. A faithful and wise servant has responsibilities. Every single one of us are supposed to minister to the other people in the household of God. Verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh, shall find so doing. What does the Lord expect from us? You need to be busy about the Father's business. Jesus said in Luke 19, occupy till I come. Doing what? Just doing what he's commanded you to do. You don't, as I preach Sunday, you don't have to make up some extravagant sacrifice. You just need to be obedient to what God has asked you as an individual to do. Verse 47, Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. When is this going to happen? In the millennium. When, when he comes back, you can have authority over ten cities, five cities. Depends on what you did for him in this life. And then the other side of that coin, verse 48. Sorry, it should be scrolling, but it's not. Hmm. I'm so sorry, my screen is frozen. That's not good. Sorry, guys. Ah, I see. Okay. That's as far as it'll go, so you have to just track down there. Uh, Verse 48, But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. This might ring a a bell from Exodus chapter 32. Do you remember what happened there? Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days by that point. And the people said, he ain't coming back. Moses, he's disappeared. Don't know what happened to him. He's gone. And off they go, eat, drink, rise up to play, make the golden calf. They just start living it up. That's what happens. People get tired of waiting for Jesus to come back. They think, well, this probably isn't going to happen. Off they go back into the world. Verse 49, And shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. Now notice, he smites his fellow servants. 
Some people approach this passage and say, well, this is a guy who's not really saved. He, He was never really saved to begin with, and that's why he ends up doing this. I don't know if you can say that. He's, he's smiting his fellow servants. He, he said, my Lord delays his coming. Uh, th- to me, this if you're standing there hearing Jesus say this, right, you would assume that you, one of his disciples, that this applies to you. That if you grow hard in your heart, your love waxes cold, and you backslide and start living like the world and abusing your brothers and sisters in the church, he's warning you. I don't know how else you would take that. Verse 50, the Lord of that servant shall, see, it's his Lord. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder, separate him, cut him off, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. See, his portion should have been the kingdom He should have been granted access and even authority in the kingdom, but because he did not endure unto the end. This is not a matter of, we don't read in this part about unbelief. This is a guy who didn't follow through with holy living. He didn't live his faith, right? It doesn't say that he denied his Lord. He just got frustrated with the whole Christian life and starts living like the world. This is a guy who backslides. And he ends up out there with the hypocrites. Verse 51, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so this, this raises a couple questions that we need to address. If you, and, and I want to take us back to when Jesus said this, put yourself in the crowd. Yeah? You're hearing this for the first time. Try not to think of this as a Christian now who's, in 20, the year 2020, with all, you know, a couple millennia of experience having the Bible, we, we know how this story unfolds. But put yourself there before the cross. You hear this. What do you think? How would you take this? How would you understand this warning? You would understand it as directly speaking to you. You would say, whew, I had better, I'd better hold on to my faith and not be deceived. We, we read that earlier in the chapter. There's going to be false Christ, false prophets. Don't be deceived. I better hang on to my faith unto the end. And I better live it. I better live it unto the end. I don't know how else you would understand this. You would feel warned that if I lose the faith, if I don't live the faith, I'm not going to enter the kingdom. I'm going to be out there with the hypocrites, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. I don't know of any other way to understand that. Now, chronologically speaking, yeah, what happens? You remember that the disciples that are hearing this, they don't even understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus has not mentioned yet that he is establishing a new testament, a new covenant in his blood. Do you know when Jesus says that? The next couple chapters, in chapter 26... Verse 28, he mentions, this is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That idea had not been fleshed out. It had not been introduced yet to these disciples. They did not know the, forgive me for the big word, efficacy, the the effectiveness of the blood of Christ. They didn't realize that it would sanctify and cleanse them from all their sins. That's something that we're very used to, but they didn't know that at this time. That was still very foreign thinking to them, unknown to them in chapter 24. Now, as time goes on, right, they get into the book of Acts, and they are still, on Act, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, they are baptized into the body of Christ, and they don't even know it. They don't know the body of Christ has started. That is a spiritual entity. It is at work within them and around them, right? Because other believers are in the body of Christ, but they don't understand the full ministry, the full scope of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul comes along. Jesus uses him as a vessel to reveal these mysteries, these New Testament truths, that there's a body of Christ, that we have Christ living in us in the form of the Holy Spirit, that there's gonna be a rapture, All of these things were mysteries revealed through Paul to the church. So if you're a a disciple of Christ and you hear this warning, you think, I better hold on to my faith. 
I better live my faith. And then you grow in knowledge. You have advanced revelation. What do you do? Now you say, okay, wow, I'm in the body of Christ. This is wonderful. I have these spiritual blessings in Christ. I can't be separated from him. My mistakes, my sins, my failures are going to be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. All of that was explained through Paul. Then what do you do? If you're one of these disciples, what do you do? Do you just throw out and discard what Jesus said? No, obviously not. You still say, my faith, right, what I believe and how I behave, both things are extremely important. Now, I understand because I'm in the body of Christ, because God is working differently now, I understand that the punishment for my failures are going to be dealt with differently. But just because I'm in the body of Christ, I don't think, oh, okay, now I have liberty. I can do what I want. I can backslide. I can live like the world. I can abuse my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, if I'm one of these disciples, I wouldn't be thinking that. I would still say, wow, what Jesus said is still very important to me. I understand the heart of what Jesus was warning me about. I need to be a dedicated disciple unto the end in both belief and practice. I understand because of advanced revelation how the body of Christ, right, it fits in between the cross and the second coming. So I'm, that advanced revelation doesn't overthrow the good, solid, practical lesson that Jesus has taught me. So I think there's two options that you can apply or that you could, well, what's the best way to say this? Yeah, two options. Two options we have for viewing this passage. Number one, you can try to blend together the teachings of Jesus and Paul. Some people do this. They say, Let, let's put both teachings together. What you end up with is we get saved by faith, and faith puts you in the body of Christ, but then you have to hold on to that faith and live that faith. And if you don't, you fall out of the body of Christ. See, that, that's putting Jesus and Paul together. I'll tell you my big concern with that. The Apostle Paul never talks about being separated from the body of Christ. He could have, right? Couldn't he have spelled that out? But nowhere in, in Paul's epistles does he, talks about, does he talk about a servant being cut asunder and appointed a portion with the hypocrites and gnashing it. He never, why not simply say, remember what Jesus said about this? It's going to happen to you. Paul never talks like that. He did say this, Romans 8, verse 39, 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He did say that. So that, that first option, right? If you're going to say, well, you, you, you get saved by faith, but then you have to hang on to that faith. This passage says you have to live that faith. And if you don't hold the faith and live the faith, then you can lose it. Well, like I said, I just don't think that's consistent with what Paul taught, but that's one approach, right? That's one approach. And I, and I recognize, I recognize why some people would go that way because you have verses in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, that does indicate you can forsake the truth. But let me, let me show you something about the book of Hebrews. People say, well, it's just a matter of unbelief. If you don't believe to the end, then you're going to lose it. I, the book of Hebrews has something else to say. Uh, verse Hebrews 12, verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather uh, be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, yes, you need to hold on to the faith and you need to hold on to holiness. Or else when the Lord shows up, you, you're not a part of entering the kingdom. That's how that chapter ends. So back in Matthew chapter 24, I just chose a random verse there so I could get back to it. So option one, put Paul and Jesus together and try to make those teachings match. I, I, I struggle to do that. But the other option is to think of this with advanced revelation. And you, you've got to admit, 
right? You had the Old Testament. God revealed things to the nation of Israel. Jesus showed up. He added to that revelation. And the, the people that were following Jesus, it's not that they discarded the law. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill it, not to destroy it. He added to their understanding of it. And I think as time goes on through the Bible, you have to see how God progressively revealed truth. So once we get to the body of Christ, we understand how God is working with us. I believe once we're in the body, we can't be cut asunder from the body. We understand that our failings will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. We still have to take heed to what we're learning here, that Jesus can come at any moment. That is still true. And we should be faithful and wise servants, busy about the Father's business. We should take seriously these warnings. I think it's a mistake, and and this is a mistake I think that I've made as I've read these chapters and, and taught these chapters in the past, is I look at it and all I'm trying to do is figure out the dispensational nature of it and well he meant it for that for those people at that time and it applies to the tribulation and we miss the heart of what he's trying to teach here. So I thought it necessary to at least cover the doctrinal aspect of it and why I think a looking at it through a dispensational lens, looking at it with the knowledge of there is advanced revelation and God progressively reveals truth. And we, you have to think as if you're one of these disciples who's slowly learning these new things. All of that's necessary, but let's not forget the main lesson here. Stay ready. Hold on to your faith. Live your faith. Now that carries us perfectly into chapter 25. If you guys have questions about that, please let me know. I'd be happy to deal with that a little bit more. It is very important. All right, let me pull up chapter 25. Let's see if I can do it. Yeah, there we go. There's chapter 25, and let me give you the outline for chapter 25. Um, This is going to be a little detailed. I've given you two-thirds of it on the screen. Chapter 25, part 1, verses 1 to 13, 10 virgins. 10 virgins. The lesson behind this parable of the 10 virgins is that they're unprepared. So that's, that's the, the warning, right? That's the problem. They're unprepared. Now, how do you fix that commitment? So I, I forgive me. I just didn't have room to put all of that on the screen. Um, we're reading about 10 virgins. That's the parable. They're unprepared. Five of them were. And what's the solution? Commitment. Part two, three servants. Right? One gets five talents, one, two. One gets one. What's the problem? We have an unprofitable servant the one that received the least. What's the solution? Be constructive. Be constructive. So the solutions, forgive me, I didn't list them out there, but solution number one, commitment. Solution number two, constructive. And then part three of the outline, two groups. We're going to read about sheep and goats, the righteous and unrighteous. Now it'll be verses, forgive me, I don't think I gave the verses. Part two is 14 to 30, and part three, 31 to 46. What's the problem? In the last part of the chapter, the problem is the goats were unloving. That sounds strange, right? If you, if you just divorce that sentence from the whole context of what I'm saying, the goats were unloving. Um, but some people are, are unloving. They have no compassion, which that's, that's the answer. Compassion. Compassion for your fellow man. All right, so let's get into chapter 25. And I'll leave the outline up for just a few more minutes. I know some of you take a moment to write that down, so I'll give you a chance to copy that. Uh, Chapter 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. They they took their lamps. It's not that they are on their way to the wedding, because nobody knows the time of the wedding, or or the wedding feast in this case. They took their lamps and went forth. They're going towards the general place, but they, they're just wanting to stay near so that when it happens, they can make their way towards where this wedding feast is going to be held, whenever that might be. They have their lamps ready, right, in their hand. And 10, by the way, is a unique number for the Jews. They considered 10 to be the least amount of people you could have in order to call it an actual assembly. If you didn't have 10, it didn't count. 
There's actually some biblical evidence of this in the story of Ruth, Ruth chapter four, Boaz had 10 elders that he met with in the gate to discuss Ruth's situation. That was the minimum you could have to call it a proper assembly. So I believe that's why 10 is, is the number given here. Now notice here, very important, 10 virgins. Why would Jesus point this out? Well, virgins, this was a common, virgins is used not only in the sense of a pure, chaste woman, but an unmarried woman as well. So at every wedding, you would have a, a group like this of unmarried women. Uh, I'm going to show you a verse now. This is your attendance code for the evening. So I'm going to take down the outline. Let me know if you need it. I'll put it back up. But the attendance code is Psalm 45. We're actually going to look at a few verses there. But uh, Psalm 45 verse 14 is the attendance code. I'm going to show you a little bit about that uh, passage. Now, if, you know, if you're familiar with Psalm 45, it's a messianic psalm. It's a lovely psalm. We're just going to deal with this one part of it. Verse 10, Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people in thy father's house. Like this, this particular young lady is getting married. Verse 11, So shall the king, you know who that is. That's the Messiah. That's Christ. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord and worship thou him. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You got to you got to forgive me because when I when I read that I struggle to wrap my heart around it. The king greatly desires our beauty. Wow. Wow. We could take a while preaching there but we just don't have that chance. In verse 12, and the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Now, this is, I don't know why my screen's acting funny. This, this daughter you're reading about, that's the church as we now know it, right? Because we have the benefit of, of having a complete Bible, we can see uh, what's what's meant here? The king's daughter is all glorious within. Here's our wedding garment. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Verse 14. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. Now here's what I want you to see. The bride... And the virgins are two separate groups. The virgins are not part of the bride of Christ. The virgins follow after. They come after. So this fits perfectly with the idea that the bride of Christ is taken up. We have our marriage ceremony in heaven, Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8. And then we come back down to the earth where we meet these virgins for the wedding reception or the marriage feast. But I want you to see clearly the bride and the virgins, her companions, two separate groups, two separate groups. All right, so back to Matthew 10, chapter 25 and verse number two. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now, we don't have time to get into the full biblical description of wisdom and foolishness or folly. But let it suffice to say, wisdom allows you to plan for the future. Foolishness is just rushing into a situation without thinking it through. In verse 3 and 4, I think you'll see how this is applicable. Verse 3, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no, no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So the wise are planning for the future. They know we are going to need some extra supplies. We, we have to have enough to last unto the end. Whereas the foolish, they're not aware of this. They don't take time to sit down, listen to this, and count the cost. They don't understand the commitment that is necessary to be a disciple of Christ, not just a believer, 
but a disciple. So verse 5, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now this, it's midnight as you're going to see in just a moment. So the fact that they're sleeping, that they've become drowsy and they're sleeping, that's, of, that's not of great surprise, right? That is what you would expect when somebody gets tired. However, and we don't have time to get into preaching this. I'm going to let you guys come up with all the good sermons from these passages. But we are warned against spiritual sleepiness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So just be aware that there's, I think, a, a subtle rebuke in this. While the bridegroom tarried, he waited, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. This was very typical Jewish custom. As I mentioned last week, the son would never know the exact day and hour of his own wedding. Whenever he would get engaged, the bride-to-be would go off somewhere and work for months, even over a year sometimes, on her dress. And she would be receiving counsel and instruction from other women about how to be a good wife. The man, he, the, the young man that was to be married, the bridegroom, he would go off and build a house for him and his new wife to live in whenever the wedding took place. You see the spiritual application in this, right? We, uh, we're supposed to take care of our garments, Ephesians 5, without spot or wrinkle, that thing. While our groom, the groom, Christ, he's gone to prepare a place for us. That where he is, there we may be also. Wonderful application. According to Jewish culture, the the dad would turn to the son and say, today is your wedding day, and then send these men out, and they would run through the streets with trumpets and blow them, behold, the bridegroom cometh, come out, and now it's time for the wedding. And it happens at a time when nobody really expected it. That's, that's the way Jesus is telling the story, at midnight. Verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So it's not as easy as it is now to just flip the switch, right? They'd have to um, cut the wick and then get the fire going and get the oil, all of that, they'd have to prepare the lamps. Verse eight, and the foolish said unto the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. Now, this is where we get more into preaching or it's at least tempting to get into the preaching of this and, and I, I wanna just continue on with the teaching of it. But the oil, throughout the Bible, oil works nicely as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And I've heard that applied to this passage many, many times. And to be honest, I have no problems with that application, but I don't think that's all there is to this. If you need to keep in mind what we've been studying in chapter 24 and what we're going to learn in chapter 25, their lamps went out. It Really, you need to remember everything that Jesus has taught us in the book of Matthew. What are we supposed to do as disciples? Chapter five, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These virgins, their lamps went out. Their light is not shining. You could say that they lost their faith. You could say that they're not living their faith. They waxed cold, right? The fire is gone. There's many things you can say about this oil. It could apply to their commitment. Forgive me, I need to switch glasses so I can see my note. Uh, you could say that the oil is a picture of endurance, commitment, discipleship. If you want to say that it's a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit kind of supervises all of those attributes, right? Uh, faith, you could put faith in there. One of the fruits of the Spirit is faith. So I think all of it is interconnected. I don't think you're going to go wrong whichever way you want to approach that. In verse uh, 8, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. So they've either lost their faith or lost, the, um, lost their belief or lost the behavior, one or the other. Verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. What I think is, is noteworthy at the end of the verse, go to them that sell and buy for yourselves. In Revelation chapter 3, let me pull it up quickly for you here. Jesus, that's not how you do it. Jesus said this, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. 
The shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Now not buy of me gold and white raiment. Buy it. How do you buy it? You endure the persecution for your faith and you keep your garment unspotted from the world. Right? You hang on to that profession and you live it out. So I think that that ties in to what we're learning in Matthew chapter 25. Now he says, where are we? Verse number nine. Go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. So stand up to the world. Take the persecution. Now this seems a bit counterintuitive for the Christian. Why aren't we helping these people? Why not, why not share with them? Well, when it comes to faith, right, can't you share your faith and not lose? Not, it's, not like you're, it's not like literal oil where it's a portion has gone to them. Now I'm lacking of it. So can't we just share their faith? Can't we encourage and strengthen them, give them a second chance? Why be so strict and stringent with this? Think about the lesson that Jesus is getting across. You cannot borrow commitment. You cannot borrow endurance. You can't. You can go to these wise virgins and say, pray for us. <laughs> but you can't go to them and say, take some of your faith and put it into us. That's not how it works. You've got to have your own commitment, your own discipleship, right? That you cannot you cannot borrow somebody else's relationship with God. You can be provoked by it. You can learn from it. But that relationship cannot be yours. You can't share that. I think that's, that's the point of what he's saying here. In verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. That'll be the marriage feast. And the door was shut. All right, so now the marriage feast has started. The door is shut. And there's no more time. You, there, no more opportunities to come to the wedding feast. So prophetically speaking, the Lord has come back. The kingdom has started. You missed your chance. Verse 11, afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now remember, this goes back to Matthew 7. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Right? It, it, it ties in with that. So they come late, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, verse 12, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. They did not maintain the personal relationship. I think that's the warning he's saying. You guys, these virgins might have made a profession early on. They might have actually been a follower, but they didn't continue on unto the end. So doctrinally speaking, I think you're talking about somebody in the tribulation, makes a commitment, doesn't see it through into the end. Now notice here, and it's unique, right? It's worded specifically to say, I know you not. He doesn't say here, I never knew you. Interesting. He says, I know you not. Because it could be that at one point, he, they did know each other, right? But there was something intimate and personal. But at this juncture... They gave up on that relationship. So he says, I'm sorry, you're out. I know you not. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. It, it flows perfectly from what he just said in, at the end of chapter 24. In all of chapter 24, guys, be ready. Keep your faith. Keep your beliefs. Keep your behavior right. You just don't know when this is going to happen. It's not like you're always going to be afforded a second chance. You just don't know when time is up. So the answer, the solution to this, they were unprepared because of foolishness. They didn't sit down and count the cost. When they made a commitment, they didn't think it through all the way to the end. Oh, that they were wise, God said, that they would, that they would consider their latter end. He said, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. That's back in the book of Deuteronomy. Think it through. Am I ready to be a disciple of Christ no matter what happens, no matter the persecution, no matter what the cost, no matter what is asked of me, no matter what the Isaac is that I have to sacrifice? I want to be his disciple. That's the commitment that needs to be made. And if you're ready to make that kind of commitment, right, then 
you can solve the problem of being unprepared. As, as, much, as, as much as a human can, I believe. Or verse 14, he's going to step now into the second parable. Verse 14. You guys let me know if any of this is unclear, if you got any questions about it. Verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. Now, I think you're, you're in tune enough with your Bible at this point. You understand immediately who's being talked about here. The man traveling into a far country is Jesus. He's going back to heaven. Who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. So he's going away, but as he's going away, he says, here are the necessary resources that you'll need to to get the job done in my absence. Um, This would be the equivalent of Christ going to heaven and sending gifts down to men through the Holy Spirit, right? However, I don't want to limit it just to spiritual gifts. I think there's more to this story. Yes, the spiritual gifts would count as the goods that he's given us. And we're going to see now the word talents, the abilities, but also any resource that the Lord provides. Money, time, connections, right? Friendships, whatever the resource, it can be used to further the Father's uh, will. So he's delivered unto them his goods. You have access to everything you need through Christ. Verse 15, And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, according to his unique ability, what he's able to manage, and straightway took his journey. So here's the goods. Now notice, not everybody gets the same amount of resources. Isn't this, doesn't this match reality? Everybody has at least one. Some people have more resources. Right? Not only spiritual gifts, but more resources. You will be judged based on what you did with the resources God made available to you. Now, as it pertains to the word talents, this was a, a unit of measurement back in biblical times. The Romans used it, the Greeks used it, the Jews used it in, in biblical times. So talents is just a measure, a way of talking about money. We would say rands, maybe, something like that. You find a, a parable much like this, not exactly the same, but much like it in Luke 19. And there, instead of talents, it's pounds. Now, the book of Matthew, I believe, was written for a Jewish crowd that was in Israel. Therefore, talents would be more familiar to them. Matthew writes it as talents, which I don't doubt that Jesus said talents. But then the one in Luke 19, Luke is writing his gospel for a Gentile crowd, which would have more of a Roman slash Greek flavor to it. He uses pounds because that's what's familiar to them. And again, I don't doubt that Jesus gave a different parable, similar but still different, and said pounds there. What's what's interesting about the word talents, when Matthew wrote this, it's just a measurement of, of money, a unit of measurement. But of course, when we say the word talents, we're talking about skills or abilities. Now, that's not how Matthew intended it, but we can certainly dig into that. That makes for good preaching, right? Let me show you a verse about abilities. Um, Peter says it like this. I'm going to give you 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God has given you certain abilities, a measure of faith. Verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So speak boldly, speak truthfully, those kind of things. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, you can also refer to it as an ability. That's how Peter referred to it. You can see when you compare verses 10 and 11, a gift and an ability is synonymous. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so talents, if you want to think about it as an ability, um, like I said, it makes for good preaching. That'll work. And there is some biblical foundation for that. All right, so he gives to every man according to his several ability, to what he can handle, and off he goes. Verse 16. 
Now, in case you're wondering, am I the guy with five or two or one? Does it matter? Doesn't matter. You, you, you just work with what you got. You don't need to sit around taking inventory. Just work with what you got. Do as much you can, as much as you can with what you have. Verse 16, then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. So he's a thrifty guy. Constructive. Constructive. He's able to make more. He's able to make much out of little. Verse 17, and likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Now notice they're both making 100% increase profit. So if you want to look at it like that, who cares if you started with two or five, you've doubled your money. So they both accomplished the same amount of progress if you measure it like that. Verse 18, but he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now again, great preaching from this. He went out and hid it in the earth. He went back to the world, if you want to preach it like that. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. So here comes the judgment. Verse 20, and so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now notice what the Lord emphasizes here. Faithful. Faithful. He stuck with it. He didn't give up on it. He kept working all the way through. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now this will, this will equal an entrance into the kingdom However, he's going to be a ruler over many things. In Luke 19, he says, you've gained 10 pounds. You'll have authority over 10 cities. Let me give you another cross-reference in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can see here um, verse 5. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And then he, verse 5, 6, 7, all the things you need to add. Uh, verse 8. If, you, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you should be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, verse 10, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. So you get assurance by growing in the faith. Verse 11, watch this verse especially. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you can enter the kingdom, but you can do so abundantly. Why? You grew in your faith. You started with just faith and then it grew. You added, 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 added. And then when Jesus shows up, you can say, Lord, I started with this much, but I ended with this much. And... He finds you faithful. He's, you're the kind of guy, you're the kind of girl, uh, the lady that he can trust in the millennium to rule over something. Forgive me, what, what verse were we on here? Verse 21, we just covered, yeah. So verse 22, he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. Verse 23, his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now, careful here. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Well, you only gained two. You didn't gain five. So we can't trust you as much. No, no. He says the exact same thing to this servant. Now, this is where you find a slight difference with Luke 19. There, they all receive one pound to start with. One guy gains 10, the other guy gains five. So he says, you gain 10, rule over 10 cities. You gain five, rule over five cities. See, it's proportionate to what the guy did. But in this case, one guy started with five, one with two. Well, you can't expect the same um, level of production if you didn't have the same, the same uh, capital to begin with. So Jesus judges them not based on the quantity, but on the quality. You get you doubled your money. That was a hundred percent effort, hundred percent profit. So he says he gives them the same reward. Verse twenty four. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee. 
ironic. I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Well, then he really doesn't know the Lord. He looks at the Lord as if God is Pharaoh, this austere, difficult, froward taskmaster of a God. He's so difficult. His standards are so high. He requires so much. He's just a difficult man. I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown. And get, forgive me if you hear those sirens in the background, something's going on. It's not my place, Lord willing. <laughs> reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. Now to straw, that's to, to, to spread the seeds out, right? Well, it's true that the in the parable here, it's not as if the master of the house went out into the field and did the work himself. He did command other people to do that work. But this servant is now holding that against him. Now, you can see how this would work in, in, when you interpret the parable. Well, Jesus, you're up there at the right hand of God. I'm down here doing all the hard work. See, that's how this hard-hearted, unprofitable servant is viewing it. He doesn't understand the Lord properly. Which, there, there, there's the deep lesson. If you properly know the biblical God, you have no problem serving Him. You have no problem sacrificing for Him. You have no problem being 100% committed, forsaking all to follow Him. If you know the real God, the God of the Bible. Verse 25, this guy says, And I was afraid. And went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. So he said, I, I know that your standards are so unreasonable. I never could have done enough to please you. And this guy with one talent, you know, he might have also been thinking, well, you know, I didn't have five or two. So evidently the Lord doesn't think much of me. So I'm just not going to do anything. He didn't understand the Lord properly. He didn't understand that the Lord is looking for quality, not quantity. He says, you want your talent? It's there in the earth. You can go get it. I was afraid. We just don't have time to dig into it. Boy, I'd like to. But in 1 John chapter 4, we read about perfect love casting out fear. Once you understand perfectly, completely, the love of God. Now, now when I say that, I'm talking about how it works. How it was given to you and what God expects you to do with that love which is spelled out in the book of 1 John. It's not that difficult of a concept. Perfect love cast out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. I was afraid. Something's wrong with this guy's relationship with the Lord. He doesn't know him. Verse 26, not properly. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Now, in Luke's parable, in Luke 19, Luke adds in there, or Jesus adds in there, I will answer thee out of thine own mouth. So when we read here that the Lord says, you, you knew that I was this kind of master. What he's saying, he says, I'm going to use your argument against you. If that's the kind of master you think I am, then you should have done this, right? So I'll let you look at that. In, it's in Luke 19, uh, Luke 19, 22, if you want to check that cross-reference. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. So take it to the bank, Luke 19. Let, let my money build interest. How does this relate to reality or to real life, I should say? If you're not going to use your resources, if you don't know how to use your resources, at least give them to somebody else who does know what to do with it. And then they can multiply that resource. Say, preacher, I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know how to engage in intelligent conversations about religious things. I'm not going to be a preacher. I don't know how to build a church. Bill, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. Well, maybe you're maybe you're a hard worker and you know how to make money and you can just provide the money so that other people can 
write the gospel tracts, buy the Bibles, build the church buildings, support missions. That's not a small thing. You're doing what you can do. So rather than focus on all the talent you don't have, look at what you do have and say, well, let me get it into the hands of the people that know what to do with it and let them multiply it. And then in the end, you get credit because at least you did the best you could do with that talent. This guy didn't even do that. Verse 28, take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath 10 talents. So the portion of the kingdom, the portion of the inheritance that would have gone for that servant because he did nothing with his opportunity, there is now a gap, if I can call it that, in the kingdom. There's a spot available, a, let's, let's say another city available to be ruled over. The faithful, trustworthy servant gets an extra portion now. And it, it's taken from what this man could have had. Verse 29, for unto everyone that hath shall be given. All right? Unto everyone that hath. Hath what? Everybody that has a constructive attitude, everybody that has been faithful and fruitful, unto everyone that hath shall be given. Given what? A reward in the kingdom. Be given authority in that kingdom. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not, so he didn't do anything with that, opportunity shall be taken away even that which he hath. In this particular case, because Jesus is not addressing the body of Christ, he is addressing people that are in the generation that will see the end of the world. He says, if you don't hold on to that faith and do something with it and live it out, you lose it all. Verse 30 Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the lesson remains the same. Make the commitment. Be constructive. You need to have your faith. You need to live your faith. Now guys, we might be, we are in the body of Christ and Christ deals with us differently as it pertains to our judgment, right? The judgment seat of Christ. But the lesson remains the same. We need a solid commitment we need to be constructive with what we believe, do something with it, and we need, to, we need to make plans to do this under the end, to do as much as we can with what Christ has given us. All right, we're going to stop there for the evening. So we'll pick it up next time in verse number 31. Uh, if you guys have any questions, now is the time to slip them in. I'm just checking to see if there's anything else I need to uh, mention don't forget about the Matthew exam. You have until next Tuesday to write that. Uh, it should be uploaded to Google Drive, so you can go there and get the, the, um, the questions. But then, yeah, by next Tuesday, be sure to have that emailed or sent to the church one way or the other. All right, if there are no questions, I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll check the chat box one more time before we're done. But I appreciate you guys tuning in. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to study these things. And Lord, I, I know that as time has gone on, you've revealed more and more about what the blood of Christ can do and the spiritual blessings we have in the body of Christ and what your plan is for us specifically. But Lord, we don't take lightly what you've said here. We want to be profitable servants. We want to be prepared servants. God, please help us to learn these lessons. Make the necessary commitment. Be, be that sold-out disciple. Help all of us to take this to heart tonight. And I pray that your hand would be on us tonight. Allow us to fellowship with you and as much as we can with the, with the others around us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Brother Mike. I'm going to put this... Oh, there we go. Brother Mike, won't you have self-pity when Jesus is serving you for, uh, for during the wedding? Whew. Let me show you guys the passage that Zintle is referring to. Um, it'll take me just a second to get the verse. I'm sorry, I know it bothers me when people scroll too quickly when I'm watching, but 
uh, Zietland is referring to this. Luke 12, 35, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Doesn't that match Matthew 25, your lights burning? And ye yourselves liken the men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. Notice the wedding ceremony took place up in heaven. Then he returns from the wedding. He's down here on the earth for the wedding feast. That he may co- uh, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may openeth, open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. So it's verse 37, that I believe you're asking about. Correct me if I'm wrong there. And uh, will I feel... I'm, I'm, self-pity isn't the, the right term I, I wouldn't use, but I would say awkward, uh, humbled, out of place to think that the Lord is now putting the food on the table in front of me. Believe me, it's, it's, it's a thought that has crossed my mind. You know my reaction to that, Zintley, my, my initial reaction. John chapter 13, when Jesus comes to Peter and says, let me wash your feet, Peter says, not so. I'm not, you can't wash my feet. That's backwards. I should be doing this for you. And he says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, okay, okay. My head's my hand, everything. <laughs> he says, wash the whole thing. Um, I, I, I can see so many people, right, in the body of Christ when that happens, turning to Jesus and say, please have a seat. Let us do it for you. But um, yeah, it's, it's gonna, that is going to be an incredibly unique experience. All right, it's a good question though. I'm glad that's a very good cross-reference to this. So I appreciate you pointing that out. All right, there's no other questions. So guys, thank you for tuning in. And Lord willing, uh, you guys will be with us again tomorrow night as Francois continues on, I believe, maybe even finish the book of Philippians tomorrow. So you guys pray for him and we'll see you soon.